Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is the Horror Shots Podcast. The religion of one age is the literary entertainment of the next. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of the Horror Shots Podcast with me, Casey. I want to do something a little bit different today, so I'm going to go completely off script. In other words, I didn't write a script for this episode. It's going to be a little bit of a special episode, if you will. But first, as always, I want to go over some housekeeping. As per the usual, I want to thank you for listening. That's always going to be a constant. I can't ever truly show my appreciation, other than keep doing these podcasts, of course. Uh, Secondly, if you do want to support me in other ways, such as monetary ways, you are more than welcome to. I'm not going to say no, let's be honest. And you can do that by checking out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorshots. Also, don't forget to check out my website at horrorshotsblog.wordpress.com. You can check out some fancy pictures and all sorts of good stuff on there as well. Lastly, I'm on Facebook at Horror Shots Podcast and on Twitter at Horror Shots Pod. So feel free to follow me or check me out on there. You might get some new information. Facebook isn't updated as much as I like, but I do tend to try to keep a fairly active Twitter. Nothing crazy, but worth a follow, and I'll follow you right back. But today's cast, as I mentioned, is a little bit different than most. No script, all off the cusp, except for the fact that I'm going to be reading from a book. And no, it's not the... Dictionary of Demons by Michelle Bellinger. No, it's something called the Vampire Watcher's Handbook, a guide for slayers by Constantine Gregory. Now, I found this little gem at the thrift store. And if you don't go to thrift stores often, you think they're, you know, kind of gross or dirty and secondhand stuff is kind of blah, change your mind on that. Because I guarantee you're going to find some gems in there and it's only going to cost you five bucks for, you know, like a tome. Granted, this isn't a tome, it's a paperback, hardcover sort of thing. It's just a little book, but it's interesting, it's fascinating, and I'm not sure if it's meant to be fiction or if it's meant to be a true guide, but it does have some great information in here, and I'm going to be reading pretty much verbatim and then talking about a little bit about what the contents are. So the book covers pretty much everything from the history of vampires to... Uh, different types of vampires, to how to slay them, where they live, and prevention. But we're not going to go over the whole thing today. This might be split up into a couple of parts. I'm just going to go over probably the first chapter, maybe the first 20 pages or so. We'll see how long that runs, and then I'll take it from there. So let's get things started. The prologue is entitled, Are Vampires Real? And it starts with, The Vampire. The fiendish, diabolical creature, once feared above all others, has become a pale reflection of its former self, which is true. This is me speaking now, not the book. And I happen to agree wholeheartedly with that. Vampires back in the day were revered and people were truly afraid of them, but now they sparkle. So you see where that's coming from. What once terrorized entire nations is now widely viewed as an effet vaudeville villain, or even a fanged fantasy dressed buffoon. It may still exert a certain power as a literary creation, but 
the truly monstrous being of previous centuries appears to have retired into the shadows. But do not be fooled, the vampire is nothing if not durable. The bodies of animals and humans continue to be found drained of blood. Witnesses still recount tales of attack by unseen psychic entities. And a growing legion of occultists rank themselves among the undead, shunning light and banqueting on blood. It is time for the vampire hunter to once again dust off his stakes and prepare the holy water. We should not rest until these demonic aberrations have been eradicated for good. Do not expect this book to be a historical or sociological analysis of the vampire. It is not a celebration of things dark and gothic, and neither is its reader's companion to the vast libraries of vampire fiction. You will care little about Dr. John Polidori's inspirations, Dracula's subtext, or the sociological significance of blood when your own claret is bleeding, drained from your body by the walking dead. My intention is to arm the vampire hunter not just with the necessary weapons to combat the undead, but also an understanding of the origins, habits, whereabouts, and weaknesses of this dastardly foe. I have drawn upon my own experiences in the treatises of the priests, and learned men of science, and collated the salient points into a practical guidebook for vampire watchers and slayers alike. Now he mentions in here slayers and watchers, and I never really understood the whole watcher aspect when watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer all those years ago, but Giles was a watcher, and apparently they do exist, and I'm sure we'll get more into that as the book goes on. So sometimes fiction does have a little bit of spot in reality. Back to the book. The Vampire Watcher's Handbook comes with one simple caveat. Do not accept all you read as the ultimate truth. If every vampire account from history were taken at face value, few would escape the vampire hunter's stake. The infirm, the red-headed, and the adulterous are among the many suspected of this unholy affliction over centuries. Instead, use this information to support your own judgment. This book exists for those cases in which rational explanations can be found. And that brings us to the end of the prologue. Chapter 1 is entitled, What are Vampires? And there's a nice little quote at the beginning, and I believe every chapter has a quote at the start of it, and I really like that. I'm a big sucker for quotes and sound bites. That's just being a radio, I guess, is kind of a byproduct of that. The quote reads here, Believe for one moment that vampires are an anchorism, or the long-dead product of a bygone era, and you will sorely pay the price. The undead have always been, and still are, among us. The fear of vampires, of half-dead creatures that attack us while we sleep, or forces that can drain us of our energy, will, power, or blood, is a primal instinct as ancient as our fear of darkness. Since the beginning of time, our dreams have been haunted by demons and spirits returned from the dead to seek revenge or sustenance, or perhaps merely to terrify us. For this is indeed the definition of a vampire, as it is to be understood in the practical guide to their extermination. The creature may be physical, tangible, flesh and blood beings, or a corpse possessed by an evil demon, perhaps, or even a reanimated corpse as a result of black magic. It might even have no physical reality, existing somewhere between this world and the next as an incorporeal entity or wandering spirit. But irrespective of the form of the vampire takes, two crucial traits unite and define these evil entities. The first, 
as the more pertinent label Revenant implies, is the undead state of the creature. It is neither alive nor dead, but a corpse or soul which has returned from the grave to torment the living. It also notes here that the term Revenant equals one who comes back. The second defining trait of a vampire is the requirement for sustenance, be it in the form of food, psychic or sexual energy, or blood. The vampire cannot maintain its undead state without feeding, and will stop at nothing to sate itself on flesh, blood, or psyche. This, then, is the immortal creature that stalked our ancestors and continues to stalk us today. Throughout this chapter, I will like to touch on the origins and evolutions of such creatures in the hope of arming the vampire watcher and slayer with a full understanding of the great task ahead. Subsection of Chapter 1, The Origins of the Vampire The belief in the survival of the soul or spirit beyond physical death has been a fundamental aspect of humanity for at least the last hundred thousand years. This is evidenced, I believe, by the treatment afforded to the dead since prehistory. Even the seemingly simple act of burying or cremating the dead is ritualistic. It is no mean feat to dig a pit large enough to accept a body, and burning a fully grown adult to anything resembling ash involves a significant resource of effort and material. It is far easier to simply leave the body to decompose. But if this is not enough to convince the reader that the soul's journey into the afterlife has always been of most paramount importance, then consider the many diverse rites that accompany death. The Neanderthal ancestors went to the trouble of burying their dead, but also ensured that the bodies were tied with the knees against the chest. This is to mirror the fetal position and thus herald reincarnation. Or was it to prevent the physical body from reanimating after death? Nowhere was the preparation and care of the dead taken more seriously than in ancient Egypt. Inscriptions dating back 4,000 years found on pyramid walls at Saqqara detail the spells and rituals necessary to transport the dead to the other side. It was believed that the health of the departed soul depended on the well-being of the physical body. This led to the introduction of mummification to help protect the body from disillusion. Riches, food, and furniture commensurate with the regal status of the pharaoh were buried alongside the body, as was the Parthemhru, Book of Coming Forth by Day, a guidebook to aid the soul's passage into the afterlife. Failure to abide by these rules was believed to have terrible consequences for both the deceased and their surviving families, namely vampirism or the return of the body from the dead. And that brings us to the end of that subsection, only to lead us into you guessed it, another one. The first vampires. There can be no doubt that the vampire was known to our earliest ancestors. An engraving on a prehistoric drinking bowl reproduced the respected journal Delegation et Paris depicts a man copulating with what is arguably one of the undead. The head of the revenant has just been severed and it is believed that the image was intended as a warning to vampires to keep their distance or else face the inevitable consequences. The earliest writings on vampire entities can be traced back to the Babylonian and Nazarian states that rose in the 2nd millennium BC. Here existed a hierarchy of spirits, ghosts, half-demons, and demons, including vampire-like creatures that would return from their graves and torment the living. Among these were the wind-like Utuku, 
I believe I've mentioned those in the past. Probably my last vampire cast a little over two, three months ago now. An invisible or incorporeal demon. And most significantly, the Ekamu, the soul of a departed person that was able to find no rest in death. Both of these tortured specters were the result of death taking place under specific conditions, perhaps violently, prematurely, or with certain tasks undone, or not having received the appropriate burial rites. Unable to proceed into the underworld, these spirits would return to earth, preying on the living for sustenance. A hungry man is an angry man, as the old aphorism states. The Babylonians also provided us with an early depiction of a vampire, one remarkably similar to that shown on the prehistoric bowl. Engraved on a cylinder seal is the image of a female vampire mounting a sleeping man. Over them stands another man wielding a sword or stake. Again, a warning that any malignant entity should stay away or face execution. Cylinder seals were used to impress a unique, personalized signature into soft clay writing tablets. Like signet rings, they identified the status in society of the signatory. So, we can safely assume that the owner of this seal was particularly fearful of a vampire attack. There's also another quote on this page from a Babylonian tablet inscription. The gods which seize upon man have come forth from the grave. The evil wind gusts have come forth from the grave. To demand the payment of rites and the pouring of libations, they have come forth from the grave. All that is evil in their hosts, like a whirlwind hath, come forth from their graves. That is a pretty spooky dark verse for something that is a few thousand years old. When I'm not sure if poetry even really existed back then, but maybe that's one of the first. It's hard to say. Uh, I'm not a historian here, and I haven't done enough research into that, but it's very cryptic. And if you, as an uneducated or unlearned man from a few thousand years ago, read that, you'd probably be a little spooked. And I'm not saying they were dumb by saying uneducated or unlearned. I'm just saying that they didn't have the knowledge we have today. If you come across that now, you probably just, you know, write it off. But back then, superstitions were high. It's a very tricky thing to not put faith into whatever you read, wherever you read it. Now, this brings us to another aspect of chapter one, vampires in ancient Egypt. Like the Babylonians and Assyrians, the ancient Egyptians possessed a haunting fear that their soul or spirit might suffer in or not even reach the afterlife if the physical body was not shown due reverence and that a wandering soul finding no rest or sustenance in heaven was apt to return to haunt the living. Thus, it is believed that the true vampirism originated in the Nile Delta. The Egyptians believed that every man and woman was composed of many different souls or states of consciousness. The exact number, as their definitions, is impossible for us to ascertain, but there may have been as many as nine different aspects of humanity, each one as distinct to the people of ancient Egypt as are our senses to us today. The cot was the physical manifestation of life. This was the body that would decay in the period following death unless it had first been properly mummified. Another element was the ba, represented pictorially by human-headed heron, hawk, or falcon. The ba was that part of the soul capable of astral travel, taking flight from and traveling independently of the physical body. 
To those with a fascination for vampirism, the Ka is the most intriguing aspect of Egyptian consciousness. This double was believed to be capable of wandering independently of the body. True immortality could be achieved only when the Ka and the Ba were united in afterlife. For this to be possible, the Ka required not only an uncorrupted body, hence the complex embalming rituals of ancient Egypt, but constant oblations in the form of flowers, herbs, food, and drink. A chamber dedicated to the Ka would be built in two tombs, and a full-time priest would ensure that offerings were made each day. If the Ka was not sufficiently provided for, it was feared that it would leave the tomb as a Kampa Rupa, in search of its own sustenance, feces, urine, brackish water, and decaying animals. It was also believed that the Ka, clad in its burial clothes or wandering naked, could attack the living, draining them of psychic energy or blood. No one was safe from this most ancient of vampire. When Egypt fell to the Persians in around 550 BC, this insistence on the preservation of the physical body faded. With the rise of Christianity, reversal in the treatment of the dead meant only the complete disillusion of the corpse could result in eternal life. The vampire would clearly have to adapt. This brings us to the Vampires in the Middle Ages. The turn of the first millennium saw the rise of reported vampire activity throughout the known world. This was an era that came to be known throughout feudal Europe as the Age of the Antichrist. That sounds like a pretty fascinating age to me. Indeed, Michael de Notre Dame, in a famous epistle to King Henry II, warned of the coming of the Empire of the Antichrist, and even popes were denounced as agents of the Dark Lord himself. If accounts from the medieval chroniclers are to be believed, perhaps the Antichrist was indeed stalking the land, reanimating corpses for his own wicked means. William of Newborough, the author of the 12th century Historia Rerum Angelicarum, History of the English Affairs, talks of certain prodigies in his work. There's a nice quote here. You know me, sucker, for quotes. It would not be easy to believe that the corpses of the dead should sally, I know not by what agency, from their graves, and should wander about to the terror or destruction of the living, did not frequent examples. Suffice to establish this fact to the truth of which there is abundant testimony. Newborough recounted the tale, among many others, of a chaplain with little respect for his sacred order, Upon his death, the apostate cleric returned from his grave to terrorize his mistress, who, in turn, enlisted the protective services of two other priests. The revenant was tracked to his grave, attacked with an axe, which had little effect on the rudy chaplain, despite cleaving enormous holes in his torso, and then finally burned to ashes. Over the centuries that followed, countless similar cases would be reported the length and breadth of Europe. Confined almost exclusively to the peasant classes, these accounts were so remarkable in their similarity that only one logical conclusion could be drawn, that cadaver sanguisus was among us. We can only speculate that had these terrifying blood-sucking corpses spent more time pestering the elite classes, then greater efforts might have been made to curb the ferocious advance throughout medieval Europe. Now this does bring us to another sub-chapter or subsection of chapter 1, Vampires and the Reformation. Until the Reformation, or the overhaul of the Catholic Church during the 15th century, accounts of vampirism had been marginalized to anecdotes noted in chronicles. 
This changed in the papal sanctioning of a number of publications describing vampires and the techniques for their prevention. Thus, the vampire now had the official recognition of what ought to have been its natural enemy. The first treatise to deal seriously with the occult was the Malus Maleficarum, or the Witch Hammer, published in 1485. The pretext for this handbook, intended as a practical guide to hunting and eliminating witches and demons, came from the Bible, Exodus 22:18. Thou shalt not permit a sorceress to live. Its domination authors, Johann Springer and Heinrich Kreimer, offered dubious advice for dealing with witches and vampires, both of which were considered patent manifestations of the devil. Thus was born a period of hysteria that saw the torture, drowning, hanging, and burning of countless innocents across Europe, an era that would last for several centuries. This brings me back to the Salem Witch Trials cast I did just a little while ago. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. Just a suggestion, though. I mean, I'm not trying to be sycophantic and, you know, telling you what to do and that my stuff is great and you should listen to everything. Anyway, back to the book. More significant works followed. Scotland's King James... The sixth, or the first James of England, gave the vampire a royal seal of disapproval by collecting tales of the undead in his Demonology in 1597. A significant thesis on vampirism during this period was, and bear with me on this name, it is not an easy one to say, De Corundum Graecorum Opinoratibus in 1645 a cornucopia of Greek religious superstitions and ordinances collated by Father Leo Aladius. Another respected figure at this time, the English philosopher-poet Henry Moore, wrote An Antidote to Atheism in 1652, which, if little more than a collection of ghost stories, gave credence to what had previously been considered simply a foul curse on the poor. Here the confirmation that the vampire was not just rising up through the ground, but also through the ranks of society. As mentioned prior, if the vampires had indeed attacked higher class of people, then maybe the claims would have been taken more seriously and thoroughly investigated. But that just wasn't the case. But apparently, according to Henry Moore, when he released that uh, antidote to atheism, well, notoriety became a little bit more present in the vampire community. That does bring us to the end of that subchapter, and now we have yet another one. There's not too much more to go for this chapter, and then I'll probably call it quits. I might just do that after this one here, the vampire epidemics. The growing canon of vampire literature in the 16th and 17th century could have meant only one thing. Europe was in the grip of a major vampire epidemic. In his influential historical and philosophical dissertations on the Chewing Dead, 1679, German author Philip Rohr reiterated the belief that there was a satanic explanation for this evil curse. Quote, The principal cause is the devil himself. He is indeed the craftiest of enemies, a foe who is ever seeking every occasion and opportunity to hurt and harm poor wretched mortals." Unquote. Thereafter, vampirism seemed to spread rampantly across Europe. Suspected corpses exhumed at an alarming rate were almost always found exhibiting the classic symptoms of vampirism. Rubicund and replete bodies with tight drum-like skin and mouths dripping with blood and still groaning from their half-digested seguine feast. One pricked 
viciously with a stake, they would cry out, their blood or that of their victims gushing forth in a fountain-like stream. Of course, with little scientific knowledge or medicine of post-mortem decay, how else could our ancestors have accounted for their gruesome discoveries? Poor fellows stricken by mysterious poxes and suspected of being vampires were unceremoniously unearthed, showing the signs of their satanic affliction their bodies were mutilated or staked of course those wielding the stakes and the horde of spectators that would invariably amass also came into contact with the plague-ridden corpses and soon became infected themselves a deadly plague could spread easily under such ignorant circumstances with the finger of blame placed squarely on the devil and his vampiric minions now, i do believe that when i did cover the vampires on my first cast back however long ago that was i think three months ago now i did mention that Bloodborne diseases was a cause for this sort of epidemic. You know, maybe I'm not all that dumb after all. Back to the book. The more bodies that were exhumed, the more vampires were found, and the more vampires that were found, the more villages would be decimated. Now that does bring us to the end of that subchapter, and uh, I think I'm going to call it quits on that one. It's running about 30 minutes now, maybe a little bit short of that. So I think that's a good time to call it off. I will continue with this. I'm finding this book very fascinating. I've read a little bit of it. I haven't read through the entire thing, though. So we'll get to that at a later date. And I think if you like it, just let me know. If you don't like it, also let me know, and I'll change to something different. But I think this is a very fascinating read, and I'm very excited to share the rest of this with you. So I will be back next week, Tuesday, as always. Don't forget, again, to check out my Twitter or my Patreon or Facebook or my website or wherever. Feel free to contact me at any of those places as well if you have some information or you want to hear about something specific or you have some insight you want to share. I'll be more than happy to give you a mention on the cast if you hit me up. So once again, thanks for listening. And until next time, remember, vampires still lurk in the shadows.